0: Hey, Pete. Hey, Mia. What's up? We're about to record an episode of Share the Load. Yes, we are.
1: Can you tell us about it?
0: Yeah. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the burden of daily life, how do our evolving views on identity and work determine how we share responsibility? I'm the host, Mia Schachter, and I'm are. an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in LA. And she's awesome. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> Can I tell you about the Patreon tiers? Why, yes, you can. Let's give our listeners a great ad experience. All right, I'll try. The first tier is $5 a month, which gets you discount codes and early access to my online classes. For 20 bucks a month, you get the same uh, discount codes and early access, plus a month of shout-outs to your own product or show or offering, one free intro class, and share the load merch, which is TBD, uh, and I haven't I haven't decided what it is yet, but it's coming soon. I'm trying to convince her to do cool t-shirts. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> The tiers get better from there. There's a $10 tier, a $50 tier and a $100 tier. And right now, if you become a subscriber, you'll be helping me get a better microphone, which I hear is really important. It's real good. It's real good for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I hear. <laughs> well, all that's super cool. And if I didn't want to be a subscriber, which I am, uh, how else could one support the show? You can write a review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, which really helps direct other people to the show. It improves SEO, from what I understand. Um, You can also share about it on social media or share it directly with friends who you think would enjoy it.
1: Yes, please share. And we thank you for it. So I think we should start the show.
0: All right, sounds good. I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV and theater and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today I'm talking to Augustus Prue. He's an actor and a friend known for various shows such as The Morning Show, Pure Genius, Prison Break and Special. Hi, Augie. Hi, Mia. Uh... How are you? I'm so glad you're here.
1: I'm so glad I'm here too. Uh, how am I for... <laughs> Oh, that's a very complicated answer. Um, I'm good in general. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like we, everyone is uh, having a moment of major reflection on the micro and macro scale, and I'm no exception to that. Mm. To that. Uh, and coming, I just started therapy.
0: Wow! Good for you. Thank
1: you. Very much, which I have skirted around for a very long time. Turns oh, wow. out, I'm denial.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, turns out denial and hiding pain and oh. trauma are things that I'm very good at
0: do you think perhaps actors are very excellent at that
1: i think i think they are i think child actors Hmm. um this is what i've coming becoming this this is the up and down of my life right now it's sort of a bit hormonal and emotional all over the place and also that's a good thing because it's things that i've not allowed myself to feel but also can be very overwhelming at times and i can misrepresent myself at times but then also that's part of it because then you say something and then you realize that you don't think that and allowing yourself to go there and all that stuff and self-censorship and all that good crazy stuff that kids who acted since they were 10, like me, uh, have kind of, I guess, been, I don't know. There's a lot of uh, unchecked um, abuse from systems that I thought were there to for my protection but actually it turns out have been systematically abusing me uh for my queerness but also uh just as an actor you you know the whole job is um to do what you're told or to to you know deliver the director's vision to deliver the the writer's vision as truly as you can and and be as truthful in the moment as you can be. That's the kind of acting I do. That's what I'm interested in. But if you've been doing that since you were 10, um, your entire self-worth becomes wrapped up in everyone else's opinion of you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, in terms of, I don't know, the sort of balance of work and life, um, there isn't one. And I always thought there was one, but there isn't with me. It's actually just an act. <laughs> just, wow. I'm just acting in my daily life, performatively. And uh, in te- instead of sort of creating that balance, you... I found that my, my entire sense of self-worth was wrapped up in, in everyone else's opinions. And, and you know, um, that's tough because it leads to sort of irrational behaviours and... Um, it leads to your subconscious screaming at you, until mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Listen. Often,
0: often through your gut and your nervous system. Yeah, yeah, um, it's
1: not, it's not a coincidence. They have a gluten allergy. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Of course not. Um, well, it sounds like you aced therapy and can quit oh, now yeah. and graduate to the next thing. Um, <laughs> 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 uh I want to back up a little bit because Watch I think <laughs> Yeah. I want to back up just a little to like before 10. Um I I I know that you were a child actor and that means that you were of course put to work at mm. a very early age. Yeah. Um but I wonder before that yeah. if you have memories of coming to understand what work was.
1: Yes, well, I come from a very, um, very privileged background. Um, Not just because I'm white, as I'm understanding now, more than ever, but um, (laughs) because um, my mother uh, was, is a very, still is a very um, respected sort of, I guess, sort of icon of British fashion. And um, she founded London Fashion Week. And um, so she she has what's called an OBE, which is where you go to the palace and you get essentially knighted. It's not quite a knighthood, but it's the one couple rungs down. But you still they wow. still get the sword and all the pageantry and all that silly stuff. So yeah, um, uh, so She's met
0: the queen. Is what, what you're saying? Yeah,
1: we all went. <laughs> Alice and we all met the Queen. And I'm what? proud of your mother. Yes, very proud. <laughs> uh, but as a consequence, my um, idea of work, work was always about, and I think this was instilled from in me from a very young age, that I'm again only realizing now, sort of unlearning these things, is that work to me was about, um, for my mother was always about sort of self-expression and about, Uh, It sort of always it wasn't just a job. It wasn't just something you did. It was something you were something you are It was like an all-encompassing part of your life that um, Wasn't optional. It wasn't something you just you punch out of And would be sort of instilled essentially with I guess a kind of pressure to um, be very successful and um, which is absolutely not a bad thing, but I think because my parents are of the generation they are from, a lot of their good intentions sort of turned into um, uh, results-based thinking. And because my mum is very mm. in fashion, it's all about aesthetics and how things look rather than how things actually are. And you know that sort of um, And again, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel victimized by that or anything. I had a wonderful childhood. It's, you know, I don't feel like I'm poor me or anything like that. But I, but I do think that it's something that um, went unchecked for a very long time. And so my idea of work has always felt as a consequence, a little bit oppressive. And in my times where I wasn't as successful as I, as I thought I should be, or as I felt my parents wanted me to be, I think is more the point or. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not even saying that they did think that it was my interpretation of what I thought, which is even more nuanced and complicated. Um, Yeah, so I guess I'd always, work for me was always a way to establish um, that sort of uh, sense of power, I guess, in myself. And I was sort of lucky that I had a lot of success as a child. And also acting was something that, that, that's not to make it all, you know, sad. It was, a, I love acting. Acting is acting is what allowed me to connect with my emotional self and, and to sort of actually, it was very cathartic for me acting. You know, I was processing a lot of my pain and a lot of my hopes and fears through the guise of another character, but you're still internalizing all of those things and processing them for yourself. Um, you know, it's just, uh, some thought patterns are more conducive than others to, you know, sustainability, shall we say, and keeping that up and keeping a good self-image and acting as doesn't lend itself necessarily to good self-image.
0: Right, right. It just
1: comes with the territory, it just is what it is. And I think I didn't understand that for a long time. Mm. So that would be, it's quite a complex relationship Of with course. Work. Yeah, and my, my, my dad was a photographer, so, you know, work for him, there was always a, I think he struggled with that a lot as, a, as a, when we were growing up. Um, you know, work, I think he wished more than all of us that he could just clock out and just forget about work and it not be it's something that he felt like he was being judged, I think. Um, he's a very successful photographer, but again, when, when your work becomes some sort of quantifying meter of how good you are as a person, you know, it becomes quite a, can be quite a harmful relationship that kind of takes away the joy out of something that I think right. spark joy.
0: Right at one point that sparked joy.
1: One yes, exactly.
0: Um, I'm curious, and you know, I'm I'm tying this together because I'm your friend, but um, sure. I'm I'm curious about kind of when and how you began to understand. That you were queer, and um, if there was conscious thought about that um, being something that you needed to deny, yeah, um, and then if there's perhaps now even unconscious thought that you can identify in retrospect,
1: yeah, all of the above. I mean, <laughs> I guess as uh, I guess as a child, I was. Um, let's say, not afraid of playing doctors and
0: nurses.
1: (laughs) And uh, I think I was sort of. Someone who would be open to playing that game with whoever my parents invited over and. um, Was always quite open about exploring my sexuality as a child, I suppose. Um, And then. Told my mum about this one day. And her reaction was that that's absolutely not allowed. And you absolutely have to stop doing that right now. And you absolutely have to stop doing that with boys. That's that's absolutely categorically a terrible thing. And to hear that coming from someone who founded London Fashion Week is obviously- I know,
0: I'm like, who were difficult. her friends?
1: <laughs> this is it. I mean, a lot of her, I think, you know, we have these conversations now, of course she regrets ever saying anything of the sort, but, you know, I think, it was, the, it was the early 90s and Aid was uh. all of her friends and she had basically lost all of her friends. All of her gay friends had died pretty much. Um, and I think she, you know, it was a really hard time to, for, for queer people at that time. And I think my mum didn't want me to suffer in that way. Now, of course that, that is flawed thinking and, and uh, internalized homophobia and all that, all that stuff. Um, and yet, that was that was what happened, and that's that is what it is, really. It's 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 just that's the that's trauma, isn't it? That's how trauma yeah. cycles through generations, and that's that's what that is. And that's I don't blame her for that. I think she she was well intentioned and she was trying her best, and I can't fault her for that. Although it did end up um, hurting me, and uh, in terms of my um, there was a dark period in my teenage years where I would suppress what I knew were, were gay thoughts. You know, if I was attracted to a man or um, if I got a boner that was inappropriate or that I felt mm-hmm. gay about, you know, which happened. Uh, usually if there was a guy in the room who I had a crush on and you know, I had a crush on a tennis player who was us tennis. And I, had, I tried to rationalize how much I, how attracted I was to this tennis coach this tennis coach. Privilege. What a privileged childhood. <laughs> 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 I also had a uh,
0: tennis coach.
1: I'm yes. Uh I am who I am. Um <laughs> but uh but yeah, I mean, you know, so yes, that was really tough. And I and I I had girlfriends and I dated this I dated a girl who you met and you mm-hmm. I believe you knew. Yeah. Uh, and I will not, it's out of respect for her not to say her name, but uh, you, we both know who I'm talking about. Yeah. And um, I dated her for about almost six years and we had, I thought I was gonna marry her and we were very much in love and I, and I had, we were very, you know, sexually active and we had a, um, a lovely sex life until I did a movie where I uh, met a guy who um, I fell in love with, my mm-hmm. co-star on a movie, who will also remain nameless because I haven't permission to talk about him. <laughs> so, I, so I won't say his name out of respect, though I think he would probably be fine, but it's, I'll leave his private business out of this. Um, but we, we fell in love on this, on this movie and um, I ended up breaking up with my girlfriend and, and moving to LA to be with this guy and, you know, it was, I, re, I remember thinking at the time that if I had been so wrong about the most intimate part of who I was, what must else I not know, you know, mm. there must be everything that I'm wrong about, um, which it turns out ironically I was right about. <laughs> 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 um, so I guess my gut was right on that one, um, but I, I, you know, it's in terms of coming to terms with my sexuality. Yeah, it was tough, and also it's tough doing that in the public eye. At the same time, I was sort of a known public figure, you know, and I've I've had fame is something that comes and goes. It's not really, it's a total illusion. It, you know, you're you're hot and then you're not, and you're you know, you're everybody wants to work with you, and then you're literal kryptonite. And I've experienced both of those in my career, and you know, I've been. I, in times of work where I'm booking so much work, there's no way I can do as many jobs and I've had to drop out of things. And there's been time where I've literally not worked for a year. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a real fallacy in acting that, you know, things are, things are not, um, things are not deliberate. Things don't, it, it, it comes and goes. It's, there's no building, you know, mm. things all about, it's very fatty and, and trendy and what's trending and what's not. And, I think gay trauma is such that you've had to hide this intimate part of yourself and uh, actor trauma, as I call it, is uh, is about hiding the parts of yourself that aren't trending.
0: Oof. You know, you're, you're making me think like, I've never really thought about in such a specific way about like, um, you know, being, being, closeted essentially as a form yeah. of labor. Like that's that is an intense form of labor. And I would imagine that there's even um I never really had to come out. My my dad once asked me if I was dating anybody and I was like, yeah, her name is blah blah blah. And he was like, oh okay. And that was like it, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> like
0: that was the extent of my coming out experience.
1: Um, it should be.
0: I agree. I mean there's a little more to that story um, that maybe I'll share at a, a later time because I then had to tell my mom because my dad was like, I don't want to, you know, now I like know something that mom doesn't know. And then I, right? well, I'll just tell it now. I ended up, I called my mom and I was like, uh, mom, hey, there's something I need to tell you. And she had just gotten off of like her work. Her yearly work cycle was like working up toward this one event every year, basically.
1: It was and the a full set event or something.
0: It was like, immediately following that event where I call, I called her and I was like, Hey, I just need to tell you something. Cause like dad knows. And like, you don't know. And if I, um, I'm going to move the mic away from my face when I say this. Um, and I was just like, Hey mom, um, I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm seeing somebody and, and they're a woman. And she goes, what? <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah. And she was like, I can't, I'll talk to you tomorrow and like hung up the phone <laughs> and I wasn't, you know, it was in no way. Like my mom was not, uh, she just was like, I can't process this right now. Like I just had my biggest right. of all, like the entire year leads up to this. Like I cannot yeah. process more information. Like I'm having a bottle of wine and I'm going to sleep. Yeah. And then, you know, the next morning I woke up to a text message, like, thanks for telling me, sweetie. I'm sorry I reacted that way. <laughs> and I mean, like, that was it.
1: That's wonderful, and obviously, right. for disclosure. I know your parents because right. your dad was my manager for years, and yes. he's a very lovely man.
0: Yes, you know my parents, but what? So I never had to do the labor of like hiding who I who I was in that sense, right? Um, and but I I know from my own, and I mean I'm I'm speaking just from from my own experience. And I'm wondering if this kind of resonates with you that like there's a certain addiction that we get that we accrue hmm. to um to work. Mm-hmm. And when there's suddenly space in our brains where we don't need to do that work anymore, mm-hmm. there's like this uh like we don't always know what to do with ourselves anymore. Like I don't have to I don't have to think this anymore.
1: Yeah. I think that's why I became hyper aware of all of the things I've just sort of bulldozed you with in terms of my mental health right now is because mm-hmm. you know, once you remove the Displacement activity—you're just left with the underlying sort yes. of uh, neuroses that that drives you to do those displacement activities—and um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of an. In, I mean, in terms, I mean, it's look, it's it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, but it's. Um, I will say, a silver lining of of, of the quarantine is this ability to self-reflect on on a national scale. Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence, you know, in terms of what's happening in the country, in terms of race relations and um, this sort of, I think think at this stage, undeniable raising of consciousness specifically amongst white people, and the sense of outrage that white people are feeling, which is problematic in itself, because <laughs> you know, every, we are centering ourselves in a narrative that ha- has, you know.
0: And that we've been able to ignore it
1: right. for and so that, long at all. Let's, let's, we have to be honest. I went to a, a socially distant hangout about three days ago in a, in a friend's backyard and it, and it just devolved into this screaming match wow. where all my friends accusing each other of being racist. Basically, which um, is true. <laughs> and, uh, just, you know, there's really no way to sugarcoat it. It's it's unfortunately, if you've grown up in the society in which we all grow up growing up in as a white person, you are complicit. That's right. That's, you know, I, and I think that that truth, I think, is sitting because of what you just said. The dynamic at play is that people have had their displacement activity. They've had their um, security blankets essentially taken away from them. And so we're just left with this cold, hard reality that's undeniable. Um, you know, if you just, everybody's just sitting there with this information. And I think it's been a really kind of incredible thing to watch actually. It reminds me of, um, although I would, you know, be careful to make comparisons between the queer experience and the black experience, because they're very different. but. I will say, um, from my own experience, the the idea that these systems that were supposed to be there for one's protection, that were Mm -hmm. supposed to um, kind of uh, maintain safety, I suppose, um, are the very systems that have been oppressing uh, Black people specifically for a very long time Um, and in a different way, queer people. Um, And my own experience of that has been, um, was very challenging. And I think finding solidarity in, um, in, in helping my black friends and in helping that movement has confirmed a lot of the feelings that I have felt and was ashamed of in myself because of the my my queer experience from those systems. Yeah. And and so that's been interesting on a personal note. Um but it's uh, you know it's 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 such a it's it's I feel like I'm back at that time when I realized I was gay when I was 24 and I'm glad that I I I I realized then that if I had been wrong about that what else must I be wrong about and I I think when it comes to race, I I will hold my hands up and say that I didn't I didn't realize and I didn't I didn't realize my own complicity in that, and that's and that's opened me to if I was wrong about that, mm. imagine what else I must be wrong about, and um, I'm just sort of in a very open space right now. I'm just trying to sort of in terms of where we're at culturally as a country. I'm just trying to um, uh, help. That dialogue by using my platform, yeah
0: you know,
1: this thing I think that I thought was this really scary thing of having this public platform that I think for a long time, I actually felt really intimidated by my power and like just the power of having a public platform is scary because it opens yourself up to judgment, but also at the same time it's you can you can um you can help people amplify voices, and that's right. kind of my that's. Up to now, that's been what I've been doing. I'm, um, i just, I'm just reading basically lots of black literature, and um, I'm currently reading the history of racism by Ibram X Kendi, and that's an amazing book. Mm. And um, I'm uh, just. I, uh, you know, I'm just trying to educate and and highlight people that I think have more to say, and frankly, are more of an authority on on this. I just I would never. This isn't this isn't something that I feel I'm able to um contribute to because it's not my experience. I think our job as white people currently is just to listen and, and learn.
0: Yeah, it sounds though like what what your contribution is is being able to make space for other people with your platform.
1: That's true, yeah, I think so. And I think, as, again, that's acting, isn't it? You're, <laughs> you're in many ways, um, telling somebody else's story. Mm. And, um, you know, I think a lot of storytellers would see themselves as amplifying voices, you know. I think a lot of AIDS movies, although they are now problematic.
0: Right, <laughs>
1: in, right. You, representation now, Um, you know, they did raise awareness and they did do a lot of good. Um, and so I sort of, I don't know, I guess I just part, I'm just trying to be as helpful as I can be. And as you say, create space
0: Yeah.
1: and, um, just meditate really and think about what I can do long-term. Someone's, I forget who tweeted it, but, um, someone was talking about burnout.
0: Right, making sure that you're able to to contribute in a sustainable way, I think is is really important. As you said about acting, that we can't participate while it's trending. Right. You know, that, that, that that's how um how it how the movement just dissolves. I do wanna just go back to what you said about um listening because we promise to hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. And it was brought to my attention, uh, I mean, I I have long been when people are like, I don't know what to do. Not, not recently, but like when people are like, you know, I'm constantly misunderstood with like what I'm trying to say. And I've always been like, okay, in those moments, like, shut up and listen. Right. And if you need to talk, ask questions. Mm -hmm. And what I think is happening now, what I'm seeing is that, that there is a way, and I, I don't believe this is what you mean, but there is a way that, that listening, um, teeters over into um like white silence territory
1: yeah I um, think it's, it's, yeah silence yeah. is i agree right
0: so i i i think it's it's important that we know when to listen and when it's like and this is something that we're all learning to do you know knowing when to listen and knowing when to actually speak up or intervene or yeah. put
1: I guess I would talk about the difference between listening actively and listening passively.
0: I love that, I love that.
1: And I think, as you said, you know, my, my Instagram right now is, is, I'm just, I'm just amplifying. That's, mm-hmm. that's I'm listening. And when something is, um, is, I find useful information that I think other white people will find mm-hmm. interesting, I'm not gonna tell any black person how to do anything right now because that is their prerogative and we need to be listening and taking our cues about um, race from that movement. And so my job I see right now is to listen and to, if I found something helpful to um further that movement and to take action and if i if i then i will amplify that i will i I will repost something that i think helps me take action i will Mm. listen and then i will take action i think that's to me active listening something that you do um, to educate but ultimately you have to do the the universe favors action does it not you know right passively is is not helpful to anyone and as you say it it is it is the reason that we have not had movement on this issue for a very long time, you know? Right. Um,
0: no, I love that. I love that distinction between active and passive listening. Cause I think what you're talking about is something that I, I often call um, like full body listening, Right. like listening in an embodied way, mm. you know, not just, not just with your ears, mm. um, but like fully processing. And what that looks like one-on-one is like an engagement with your, with your eye contact, with your body language, like being Mm -hmm. present with the other person. And I would say that is acting actually, like that active listening is acting. And I think that that's where acting in my experience has, um, I believe like helped me be a better person in the sense that it has taught me how to in the present moment listen to the person in front of me react honestly feel in my body where things are hitting um and it's i you know i find it really meditative in that sense and i think it's that passive listening where you can kind of if there's an image in your head you know of like i'm actively listening to you right now like i'm facing you i'm looking at you i'm engaging with you if i were if you were talking and i was like you know looking around at my cats or like at the rest of my room like I would be very passively listening to you. And then that information doesn't really like sit in my body.
1: It also doesn't resonate for me either. Of course. You know, I, I also, that's an interesting thing to bring up, I think, is the feeling it in your body, yeah. um, which my therapist has told me recently is about the right brain and the left brain. Mm. I forget which is which. We either—I wish I could be an authority on this—and go home, listeners, and do your research. But one side of your brain is about intuition, and the other side is about facts, mm-hmm. and I, which means you can intellectually understand something w- but not feel it. And I think right. if something really clicks, like um, you know, from my experience, would be my uh, coming out and going, "Oh, I'm gay." Interesting, and intellectually understanding that, and then feeling mm. that difference in your body. I would describe it as like watching black and white TV to suddenly realizing that everything's in color. And it's wow. just like, whoa, you can understand, you can intellectualize anything. You can intellectualize as a white person, racism. But I think a diff- an interesting thing that I think is happening is that people are now feeling it. And yeah. I think that's why people are taking action. And I think that comes down to them listening properly, as you just right. described, actively listening.
0: There's two things I want to say. One is that you're the second person to use that metaphor of living, living in black and white and suddenly living in color on this podcast. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and they talked about it in terms of their gender identity, like rec- realizing that they were non-binary.
1: Yeah. Um, that would be, yeah. Again, not yeah. the same experience, but certainly a, a similar one. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, and then the other thing that you're saying, I I recently had a conversation with a, dear colleague, um, someone who I really adore and respect um, that I work with. And she was talking about the difference between those of us who are intellectually understanding Mm -hmm. um, race, racism, the power dynamics involved there, the, you know, the systemic nature of it, like the Mm -hmm. way that it is not just these like single incidents, um, but that it is like Perpetrated from th- through everything, um, you know you can you can intellectually understand that. There's a difference between people who can intellectually understand that and people who really have it in their hearts and their bodies and are are capable of of living it, like living, living out that kind of thinking, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, you know, moving through the world with that as like something that you feel and not something that you into that, that you only intellectualize, of course, also being able to intellectualize it, but, but also having the added layers of feeling it in your body and being able to understand it on what, what can become an intuitive level because you no longer have to kind of like, uh, you know go back and forth in your head between like is this right is this right you know i'm not totally sure let me google it Second nature
1: it's in your body yes right yeah i i fully agree with that i think yes. that's a very um salient point i mean i I mean, I, and for my, again, from my experience, it's when, when, you, when you really understand a character, when you actually really empathize with the person that you're playing, which can be really hard sometimes if you're playing someone who's not a good person or who you mm. see as a good person, um, I'm of the opinion that nobody thinks that they're a bad person.
0: Right.
1: Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. They just, uh, sometimes their values are misguided. Right. Um, but I think it's when you really truly understand a person, you, you really, you suddenly feel it in their bones. You know, it's when you put their costume on, when you put the shoes on, when you start trying to make your brain think in the way that their brains think. And again, I, I guess I would, I'm wondering whether, whether white people have are stopped being performative on race. Maybe that's the difference now.
0: Well, it no. certainly hasn't stopped. I'm seeing it all over the place. But I think that what, what I think what you're talking about is that more people are yeah, moving away I'm, from the performativity. Raising
1: of consciousness again. Right, because right. People are listening in a, in a way that they haven't before. But again, even when I'm talking about this, I feel like I'm talking too much. I'm centering myself in a, in a narrative that, you know, has been inflicted on other people. And, and I even, you know, I don't, I just wanted to help fix this.
0: (laughs) Mm It's
1: not really about me and my feelings. It's about action. It's about, you know, making a difference in a meaningful way. And that's sort of what I'm trying to focus on is how, how I can make next steps.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by me. I teach boundary and consent classes on Zoom on a sliding scale. These offer a framework for us to practice the language of consent and find and communicate our own boundaries. I also do one-on-one sessions privately. I'll let Afomia share her experience with you. Doing boundaries and consent work with Mia has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I remember when I began this work with her earlier this year, I was terrified. I didn't really know what to expect and was scared that I was gonna make a fool of myself. And I'm so glad that I went because it's nothing like that. One of the most powerful things Mia ever said to me was that doing this work gives you the ability to understand yourself and to then give the gift to others to not cross your boundary. And it's been so rewarding and so amazing. And I've literally recommended her to everyone I know. She's a remarkable person and the work is so individualized that I truly believe that everyone can get something out of it. Thank you, Afomia, for that incredible recommendation. You can find the forums to register for class or book a private session through the link in my bio on Instagram, at Mia Schachter. And on with the show well, i I'd like to speak to that a little bit because I think you know i'm I'm looking at my platform, my really small platform, as a place for me to um, share kind of my, as as you said, like the things that resonate with you, that that cause change in you. Mm. And when I'm speaking to people in my voice through my platform, I'm generally speaking. To other white people and non-Black people about um how, how I go about educating myself, how yeah. I have engaged in um, you know, interrogating my privilege and moving through my guilt and and all of that over the last like 15 years, mm-hmm. as I began to understand as a child that I was living a very privileged life. Mm-hmm. And and for me that that manifested itself in, in incredible guilt that I've now worked through in therapy and essentially gotten to a point now where I'm, I'm no longer paralyzed by it. It's a very galvanizing force in my life and I wouldn't even call it guilt anymore. Like, you know, guilt, guilt just makes things worse. I would
1: shameful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and guilt is very much like about me, you know, like guilt doesn't help anybody.
1: It's about your feelings and yeah,
0: exactly. So I, I think what we, what we, what we can speak to and what we are speaking to is, is how we, um, participate and educate ourselves. And then what, what I hope is that other, you know, okay. So like, if we think about ourselves as like the center of a ripple, right? Like if I am dropped into a, into a puddle and Mm -hmm. I am the center of that ripple, then what, what I can do is I can, um, I can cause ripples outward based on who is closest to me because there are people who are going to white people who are, you know, whatever, like a little bit behind me, way behind me, even next to me who are going to look to me and be like, I don't know what to do. Oh, look, this is what Mia's doing. And Mm -hmm. so all I can do is continue to do the work and then share that work. And I think where that gets really tricky, um, you know, in our, in our own heads. And I think this is, I think you're probably, what it sounds like is that you're having a similar experience is that like, sometimes it feels like I'm sharing what it is that I'm doing because I'm looking for a pat on the back or whatever the fuck. Yes. Right. And that's, and you know, I check in with that constantly. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I sharing this? And what? when I come to the conclusion that I'm sharing this because I'm hoping that someone else will say, oh, I'll buy that book or, um, Mia, Mia liked that book. Like, I'll go look into that. Or Mia shared this post because it affected her. Like, I'll go look into it. And they will have a similar, um, they will be similarly affected. Um, yeah. So what, what I think is absolutely worth sharing and talking about to our peers and our community and, you know, fellow white people is mm. the ways that we have moved through what, what so many people are going through right now is this shock, the shock. Yeah. Of realizing that racism is still a thing. Yep. Right. And yep. that they are complicit mm-hmm. and that they have benefited from it. Yep. And I and you seem to be like past the shock of it. Yeah. And so what I'm hoping to do is move people who are in that shock through the shock more quickly,
1: through the paralysis of it.
0: So that, so that they can get over that faster and actually begin to engage and participate.
1: Right. The I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't yeah. want to, You know, it's that. It's, you know, it's, I think it's, look, the other thing I think at play here is it kind of a little bit, um, uh, people are afraid to make mistakes. We live in. And be
0: wrong. And be
1: wrong. And. I think doing, I think staying still and doing nothing is basically the same as making those mistakes, except 100%.
0: You're not
1: doing anything about it. You're just sitting in the mistake. So of course that feels bad. Who doesn't want to, you make a mistake. Hopefully mistakes are great, by the way. I love failing. Failing mm. is how you learn. That's how you grow. Doing a bad audition, back to my experience, is how you learn to do a good audition. Right. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Everyone does it. It happens. It totally, that's, you know, I will say the wrong thing. I have been insensitive in the past, thought I was saying the right thing and was just completely misguided and said the wrong thing. And that's fine. That's why I'm trying to listen to people who know more about this than I do. And that's why I'm trying to share their information because I, at the same time, am growing. I'm learning right now. I'm literally evolving as we speak. Like, I, it, it's that's the, and I just think as, as, when it comes to race, as white people, that's what we need to do. It's, it's, you know racism is a white person problem yeah if that's the that's the that's what I think is been a really big wake- up call for me is, Yes, it's society's problem, and uh you know the black community are the people who have to sort of live through the 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 pain that has been inflicted, but make no mistake. racism is a problem that white people have to fix it It was invented by us specifically the British, which I feel expert <laughs> around. And, and it's, it's, an, it's our job to fix it, you know? Um, and and f- to fix something, you have to understand it first and you have to understand it in yourself and you have to admit that it's there. And if you can't do that, you're gonna just be stuck in that paralyzed place forever. And I tell you, as someone who was stuck in paralyzed places for such a long time in my life, for different reasons, but you know, paralysis is paralysis. It's just so frustrating. And it just it just breeds inertia. And it's the worst feeling. And and I feel like this is such a historic opportunity right now to really jump on board with this momentum that we have. It's there is there is real, real momentum, like I've I've yeah. certainly never felt in my lifetime. Me too. And and you know, there's there is this sort of we live in this yes, we live in this cancel culture, everyone's so angry right now, and that's okay because you know we're angry. We, I think we've been duped. <laughs> Everybody's realizing that we've been duped. What we thought was real is absolutely not real, you know. And particularly Americans who have told that their country is the greatest in the world. Greatest at what? Racism? Yeah. Like, right. You know, like, come on. Poverty. Mass incarceration? Gun yeah. violence? Like, what are you the greatest at? I mean, yeah, this is a great country. Absolutely. But every country is a great country in its own way. There are lots of countries that are great every country has its problems, and that's okay. You don't have to be perfect. And I think Americans specifically have a narrative where perfection is, is it's every—it's everything is the pursuit of, of this, the best way to do so, the most perfect way to do something. How do we make the most perfect union? You know, it's in the constitution, it's enshrined in the very nature of what it means to be American is to strive to be the best. And sometimes, you know, there is no such thing as perfect. There is nothing as a more perfect union, but there's no such thing as a perfect union. And that's okay. And, and fragility and vulnerability and being wrong are how you grow. And I just feel like if that was a little more part of the conversation amongst white people, right. person to white person, that would be really beneficial for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what you were talking about before about the the sort of shattering of that being right and um being perfect when you realize that you were gay right and 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 saying like what else am I wrong about I mean something about that got me very emotional when you said it and I'm getting very emotional repeating it and I'm gonna now think have to think about like what it is that about that that is really getting to me but yeah what you're saying like you know, as you were talking, I was thinking like, if you never say anything, then you never get anything right. If you say 10 things and one of them is wrong, then you're still getting an A minus, <laughs> Right. you know? And, and if we could practice failing, and I love that you're talking about acting and how like you get used to this rejection, you get used to failing yeah. and, and getting better at failing, getting better at being wrong, getting better at taking feedback, getting better at not getting defensive. If someone says, Hey, that wasn't cool. And you were able to go, thanks for telling me. Or yeah. if you were able to say like, I feel a little fragile right now. Let me take three deep breaths before yeah. I respond to you. Like what a different world it would be.
1: I know. I, I really have been thinking about, you know, there's a, um, a big movement, more vocal, I think, in the UK is someone who sort of transcends both, both sides of the Atlantic in terms of the Anglosphere. Um, there's a movement right now in the UK to put the British Empire into the curriculum, which shockingly it isn't, believe it or not. Uh, the American West is, but uh, yeah, but the British Empire and what empire actually means, uh, and the white supremacy, racism, brutality—you know—that is a that is not a part of the English curriculum, which is what? is I know appalling. we
0: learned about that.
1: Yeah, we didn't, uh, <gasps> and I think that's a right. Yes, your reaction is... I mean, that's just uh, like if,
0: if, yeah. if, you, if I like found out today that slavery existed because I didn't learn about it in fourth grade.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think if we were able to, as a culture, come to terms with um, this horrible, just just it's the worst. I mean, the British Empire is just in, in, enslaved the entire world. Um, If we were to admit that to ourselves, acknowledge that horrible truth, and really, really work to root it out and atone for that as white people and as a culture in general, I think the world would be a much better place. And it leads me to think about why isn't therapy a central part of growing Mm -hmm. up? Why isn't learning about the constitution a central part of school? Why isn't um, learning how to take a breath before you respond to someone? Why isn't being okay with difference of opinion? You know, sometimes also things mm-hmm. are a little more gray area. Um, I think that's fine. You know, one thing that keeps coming up is the, the nature for me is people on, on my Instagram talking about the nature of protests and whether violent protest is, is allowed or right or wrong or or Whether there has to be peaceful protests, and I think my position on that is I, my, I like peaceful protests, that's me, that's how I choose to protest. But that doesn't mean that other people um, can't protest in a way that they feel is right. Um, you know, the Stonewall riots, which I benefited from, were a very, very violent riot that triggered a lot of good change. I th- think violence is not necessarily a bad thing per se. I don't think it's ever gonna be the ultimate solution. It's not gonna bring people to the table and have people listen, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a wrong, it's a bad thing on its own. I think I think we have to be a little more comfortable with just being sitting in those uncomfortable truths and just and just things that have to be, you know, I'm so, so black or white to use a weird pun, but you know, things don't have to be, you don't have to know the answer right now. You don't, it doesn't just, be okay with the fact that maybe you don't know the answer and that is something to work on. And that's great, yeah, that's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with not knowing. I think we live in such a culture, where everything has a, you have to sort of this is who I am and this is what I think and blah, blah. blah. It's kind of really tied up in that American idea of manifest destiny where you sort mm-hmm. of have to know exactly what you stand for all the time. And it's like, you don't have to know what you stand for all the time. You right. don't have to know actually, you can be wrong. And you can learn and evolve, and that's fine. That's great. I just we can want also to be part of the tradition, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, what what you're talking about is making me think of this idea that my therapist has tried to encourage me to to recognize, which is that you can hold two conflicting truths at the same time. Like mm-hmm. I, as you said, like I can hold the truth that violent protests get attention. They mm-hmm. P- they do get people to listen. They, you know, they succeed at what they are trying to succeed at. Mm-hmm. And I can also hold the truth at the same time that peaceful protests do what they do. Mm-hmm. Like those, and and that those can both exist. And yeah. and to look internally at, at an example of that, that, you know, I can have like internalized beliefs that I disagree with, and yet they are embodied and I act because of them and sometimes in spite of them, Mm. while I also hold other beliefs that might conflict Mm. and, and that I need to be able to, to be, you know, to honor the different versions of myself in me Mm. that don't always agree with each other. Like, is it, is it hypocritical that I, I mean, this is totally like trivial, but like is it hypocritical that I shave my legs, but I don't shave my armpits? You know, like, do I need to, do I need to choose? I mean, it's, that's like silly, but.
1: No, it's true. But it's like, well, why one rule for one? I mean, we just, we, we, we stop eating pork. Right. We don't eat beef anymore. Do we eat chicken? Yep. Yep.
0: Right. That's
1: why. Don't know. I like (laughs) I don't know. I love pork the most, but pork is, they're very intelligent pigs. Whereas chickens, are their lives not as important because they're less intelligent? That's a slippery slope right there. That's very inconsistent. I am wrestling with that one right now and I'm in the middle of that and I don't know the answer to that one. And I'll let you know when I come to something a little more confirmed, because I know right now I'm sort of trying it and that's fine.
0: Right. I I love that example. And I, I'm aware of the time and I know that we have to wrap up, but you're, you're just making me think of these like arbitrary lines that we kind of draw and then we, but, but I think that what we do, and I think this is true of like of sexuality and gender too. And I, I deal with this myself is like, if I decide that I have a certain gender identity or sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, I don't feel from myself permission to change my mind like I don't I I I set up this this line Mm -hmm. and then if I state the line publicly I feel that I can't move the line and that I think is what we need to do away with because we need to allow ourselves to grow and change with new information and you know and and so on
1: I've been historically distrusting of trans of the trans community and of uh um uh, bisexual community, uh, mm. because it's sort of you know, there are people who are comfortable with with it, it's it's not either or. I think we've just been taught to think that things are either this or that. That's just how we've been conditioned to think, and the truth is that's not how reality is. And I think we're just catching up with that fact now.
0: Right. Wait, you said you are what of the trans community?
1: Oh, I think it's said it, I think it's why historically. People have been um, unable to um, empathize with, with mm. people. I'm talking about heteronormative culture right. specifically, because
0: they want clarity.
1: Because they want clarity. You know yeah. what's what's going on here. You know, it's the same with, with people who are bisexual. It's you know, or gender queer. It's just anything that straddles the in between.
0: Right. Like, what do I call you? How do I explain you to my friends?
1: Exactly. People just. Right, I think people just long for simplicity and. While, you know, some things are simple, some things aren't. And that can be, as we said, both true at the same time. It's an irony that is nevertheless very true.
0: Yeah. All right, Well, I have to ask you my my closing question.
1: Hit me with it. I'm All right.
0: Um, my closing question <coughs> is, can you give me three, um experiences or pieces of media or relationships or people, whatever it is that comes to you hmm. that have brought you to the way that you think today?
1: Ooh. Hmm. Um, my husband.
0: Ooh, Jeffrey,
1: Jeffrey South. Uh, hmm.
0: can you expand on that a little bit?
1: <laughs> he's been a really good person for me. He is, um, he's a, uh, obviously a queer person, who who grew up in the South, ended up having to homeschool himself because school was too dangerous for him as a gay person. And uh, sort of has been through many hard experiences in his life, but has always, always um, known who he was and has never compromised on that. And that has sometimes got him into a lot of trouble um, but I respect that because it's the polar opposite journey that I had where I mm. always compromised myself. I always let someone else tell me who I was. And he gave me the strength to stop doing that. And now I'm <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's,
1: that's a Jeffrey. Um,
0: I'd love for someone to say that this a conversation that they had changed their life or something
1: like that. Yes, you know what? Actually, I, I do know someone. Okay. It's really random. But it, it's, there was this guy when I, when I was traveling in Thailand and I was 18 and I very nearly had a, had a sexual experience with this guy when I was at the height of denial. Hmm. I was in Thailand and, we were, and he was a really sweet guy and his name was Jamie and he was also traveling. And he was gay, and he and I we were just chatting and having a lovely time at, the, at this bar, and he basically said, I, he said, Look, like, this is really inappropriate, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're gay And I really clammed up and I what, what, I'm not sure said so just instead of just like going to that place of being like, "No, I'm not like does it matter if I think you're that and you're not?" so just be okay with it, and it was that thing of that I think that and you don't have to think that and that's fine. You should ask yourself why you had that knee-jerk reaction and I never was able to let it go. And I wish I could find that guy and thank him for that conversation because that was the seed that opened everything up eventually. I never could shake that conversation. Just couldn't shake it. And it's, um, there was one other person with an actor I was working with who asked me the same thing about two years later and it confirmed that Previous conversation, and it eventually was what led me to realize I was gay. And I actually, interestingly, about two weeks ago, found that actor who was nameless, and I thanked him for it. Wow! Because he didn't know it at the time, but it was a it was a very um, it was a conversation that triggered a, a series of events that led to me a, a great awakening in myself, and and led to my whole marriage and my the way I live now. So it was a very important conversation to me, even though it was just a flippant comment to him.
0: How old were you, you said?
1: About 18. Wow. 18 or 19, I think, yeah. When I was, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Those things that feel trivial at the time, but actually were not trivial, which Mm. were very prophetic. Uh, That's a conversation I would say was important to me. And in terms of, um, I mean, Trying to think of other people, someone else. I'm trying to find. Think of something profound. It Doesn't
0: have to be a person.
1: I found and amazing that someone said to me, or uh,
0: something my, that you've.
1: You know what? My mum always uh, understands me far more than she lets on, out <laughs> of her charm. But she ever ever since I was a kid, she always said. Uh, You know, never be scared of taking risks. And she always said, whenever something's really scary, just take a deep breath and go for it. Mm. She said that advice to me all throughout my life. Just take a deep breath and go for it. And it it happened when I moved to LA. It eventually happened when I realized I was gay and she slowly started to come around and said, well, if you really think this, then just take a deep breath and go for (laughs) it. And it was always, you know, in this weird, in this weird sort of (laughs) slightly problematic in that example, but also very well meant, very well mean, you know, very, you know, her her intention there was, was to soothe my anxiety and and Mm. just kind of what we were talking about, but just about taking a breath and just, just dialing down. It's not, not everything, not everything is life and death. And I, I've always struggled with that. And I suppose that advice was always, has always been very helpful to me. Before have you ever? I always take a deep breath and go for it.
0: That's beautiful. Have you ever given her that advice?
1: I guess I have, although I'm not as good at taking a breath when I talk to my parents about that stuff. Because <laughs> I know the pushback is going to be imminent and very heavy. Hmm. Um, (laughs) So I often will take a deep breath and then I'll go for it too much and get worked up and angry and completely undo all the good work that I was trying to do. But hey, you know, I'm learning.
0: We all are. All right, Augie, where can people find you?
1: I'm on Instagram, at Augustus Prue. I'm on Twitter again recently. I got rid of Twitter, but actually I've got it back again because it is just shouting into the abyss, but you know, we must shout nonetheless. Uh, have a second season of the morning show will be coming out eventually when we manage to get it finished. Okay. I have another very exciting show that I'm not allowed to tell you about, but you <laughs> you will hear about very soon, which is exciting, which is uh, gonna be talking about soon. Um, you could find me in the TV show special, which is um, a wonderful show about queer shame and um, disability and the intersectional sort of struggle with that. And, uh, it's
0: that's
1: on Netflix, right? On Netflix, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I don't know. I've been working since I was ten. So if you're really that interested, just type my name into Google, and that's like, <laughs> Which is a bit of a horrible thing to say, but
0: <laughs> Google me.
1: Google me, baby. Google me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ciarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing help. And to Tyler Field for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharethelodeinc.com with questions or comments. All right, Augie, this was lovely.
1: I love you. I
0: love you. Thank You you for doing this with me.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me. It's my honor. Thank you.